This is the Human Action Podcast with your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Action Podcast, joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Great to see you this morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I still think the uh, Institute should have flown me over to Davos, but uh, I guess, you know, you guys can't well, fit it into your budget. I I personally was not invited. I looked in my mailbox every day. I'm not invited to play in the Masters this year either. I'm just going to throw <laughs> that out. But at any rate, neither one of us are at Davos. But just a little less than a year ago, we did a show called The Economics of Davos. And I wanted to follow up on that. Obviously, that is one of the big stories in the news this week. And just watching some of these clips of Klaus Schwab and other participants, the uh, CEO guy of Pfizer, you know, right on cue, uh, people like Al Gore and John Kerry. Kerry had this hilarious quote, you know, we're part of a select group of humans who were touched by something in their lives. Well, I, I'm glad that uh, whatever touched John Kerry never touched me. Uh, <laughs> but, but here we are. And, you know, it, it, it almost seems like this kind of tone deafness and we experience this every year. All the conservatives and right-wingers on Twitter go, oh my gosh, look at these guys flying in there when they're private jets and telling us about climate change and what hypocrites. And, you know, we get this sort of clamor. But it strikes me, I guess, first and foremost, that maybe it was Brexit, maybe it was Trump, maybe it was COVID, some combination of all this is that I guess what we very loosely and perhaps disingenuously call a global elite, that they've dropped their pretenses somewhat. In other words, they're just sort of saying things out loud and they're not trying to persuade us anymore. Now we can get into the mechanisms of whether they actually have any real power to enact any of this, but nonetheless, it seems like they are more open than they used to be. And so a lot of the stuff that people would call a conspiracy, you know, Ron Paul warning about the UN 25 years ago. Well, you know, that was actually correct. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is one of the functions, if you will, of what Klaus Schwab is doing. And, you know, I think he's basically saying one of my roles is I'm just going to fall on the sword and let the whole world hate me or, you know, let 80 percent of the world hate my guts. And it's OK, though, in this way, because it, it's an you're right, Jeff, it's an interesting evolution in the arguments that first people are talking about, oh, my gosh, there's these people who want to microchip us. Whoa, and then they call oh, get out of here. That sounds insane. And then you'll go and play a clip from some guy from the WF matter-of-factly telling people, well, we do it with cattle, we do it eventually, you know, tracking humans and da 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 and so mm-hmm. it's, you know, crime prevention, and, you know, somebody has a heart attack, you got to be able to get EMS there too. And then it's not, oh, okay, you were right, sorry, we called you a conspiracy theorist. It's, well, I mean, they're openly talking about it on their own YouTube channel, so I really don't think it's as if they were really this shadowy, nefarious group, would they just be telling us what their master plan was? Give me a break. So it's this interesting thing, though, where, where whether they don't say it and you got to guess, or whether they come right out and say this is what we're doing, either way, it's you know not a big deal, and you know stop worrying about it. Yeah, and and of course, it's not that hard to track humans today. We don't need some sort of transhumanist chip. I mean, we all voluntarily carry these little phones around everywhere we go. So that's not science fiction or anything. And uh, uh, a digital currency, of course, would be the mechanism by which you could track people's bank accounts, their net worth, their every transaction. If they go get a Starbucks or something, it's possible to know. And, and so much of this stuff, it's not that the government or 
powers that be or surveillance agencies that are necessarily interested in you or care about what you're doing. That is sort of uh, conspiratorial thinking. The point is that later on, through data collection, they can go back. You know, let's say you become a suspect in a January 6th event. You know, now it's possible to go back and using data collection, piece together where you were, where your phone was, all kinds of things, you know, who you were emailing. So it's not that they're monitoring you. It's that that stuff lasts forever. And, yeah, and that they exactly, can get it. Yeah. yeah, right. I think that's exactly right, Jeff. Just even, again, without getting the futuristics of just like right now, how um, Murray Rothbard once had a good line when he was talking about insider trading laws. And he said something, uh, I'm probably butchering it, but it was along the lines of that's like the 55 mile per hour speed limit where everybody goes above it. And if most people say, well, see, so you don't have to worry about the cops aren't going to pull you over for going 56. Well, they will if they want to pull you over for some other reason. And mm-hmm. then they can cite that as the example. So if everybody's breaking the law, it's true. It's not that everybody goes to jail or everybody gets a speeding ticket, but it just means the authorities have the discretion to just lean on anybody they want to for any reason. And technically, you're breaking some laws. And so that's what, what just to finish the train of thought, Rothbard was saying with insider trading, every firm on Wall Street engages in insider trading if you take that phrase literally. And so they're all guilty. And so if the SEC or anybody wants to lean on them for some other reason, they can always say, well, we're going to throw the book at you for this. And you couldn't possibly have a successful operation without breaking some rule from the SEC. Well, I mean, what is definitely not conspiratorial is the idea that they, meaning WF participants at Davos, clearly intend to displace what we would consider Western free market capitalism. I mean, they're, they're, they're very open about this. And if we can, let's ask Clay, our producer, to play the clip of this Uber uh, Bond villain, Klaus Schwab, in his gravelly uh, Henry Kissinger-esque voice talking about state capitalism. So let's just watch this briefly. Who will really command the fourth industrial revolution and its technology like artificial so intelligence? What's your sense of who's best placed at this time to lead the world into the fourth industrial revolution because you pretty much created this term. We're seeing the kind of technological strides that China has made with Huawei, with the 5G technology. Do you believe that this could potentially be China's time once again? We, we should make here uh, again a, a, let's say, a differentiation. On the one hand, we have uh, state capitalism. On the other hand, we have shareholder or private capitalism. So it's a clash between two systems. I, I believe that um, state capitalism in the short term, in the short term provides certain advantages because you can mobilize in a concentrated way a lot of resources to reach a specific objective. But I believe that the future is not state capitalism or shareholder capitalism, the future is what I call stakeholder capitalism, which um, is combined with the social responsibility. So, Bob, you know, the takeaway from this is that what he breezily refers to and even sort of praises state capitalism You and I might call that fascism. Mises might call that fascism. And then he talks about shareholder capitalism, by which you and I would mean 
private markets, private ownership, good capitalism. And he's sort of dismissive of that. And he says, well, you know, we're not going to have either of these in the 21st century. We're going to have this third way called stakeholder capitalism, which presumably in- invokes some of the elements of private ownership, but also has this social responsibility element to it. So this, to me, is pretty spooky stuff. Right. And so, yeah. So for the benefit of the listener, uh, and I've on my own podcast, I went through, I did a whole series on Klaus Schwab and, you know, his, his book on the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And then when COVID came out, very uh, quickly, Klaus and a co-author came to press with this, you know, this book. It almost seemed like they knew it was coming, <laughs> um, talking about, like, how to apply the principles he'd been talking about for a while to this new situation. And so, yeah, what, what he's getting at there with the state capitalism, he's saying right now the existing paradigm and the way nation states are governed that – if there's some kind of an emergency situation that requires large scale cooperation of humans, like if there's a pandemic or mm-hmm. climate change, things like that, that you know, no one company just looking at the bottom line and trying to give more profits to shareholders can adequately deal with that. Not because they're evil, but just because that's the way that's set up. And so, yep, nations have to go ahead and do it through their elected representatives. But even that, he's saying, is actually not ideal. You know, global climate change, look at how hard it is to get all the governments around the world to agree to the Paris agreement and so forth and you know and then some nut job like trump comes along and pulls the u.s out and you see how so what they would really want is this more you know integrated framework where all the different people involved you know labor students uh you know capital and so forth and governments all come together and they are the stakeholders and all these important decisions and that's the model of the future and so what mm. that's going to mean in practice is I think libertarian American libertarians are always worried about oh no the big bad state's going to come in and interfere with the prerogatives of private business and that is largely true in the US context but that's because our government is so big relative to any individual company but at this point there are several companies that are much bigger than a lot of little countries around the world and so partly I think the vision that Klaus has and this is why a lot of people in business like his organization and are you know bought into this stuff is because you know, they will go to some smaller government somewhere and say, hey, we want to come in and extract, you know, the iron ore that you have or whatever, the mineral deposits, and we'll have our company come in and they strike deals and whatnot. And there it, you know, it does start to merge into this thing where you as a normal libertarian from the 1960s, it's getting harder to determine, well, who's the person initiating coercion in this scenario? You know, if it is this multinational corporation coming in that's using local, let's call it slave labor, or what certainly looks like slave labor, you know, maybe enforced by the local police and whatnot, but it's, they're all in on it together. And it's an idea that they hatched the the company. So again, it's a lot of like the dystopian sci-fi movies of the future, where there's these big, bad corporations as they, Klaus Schwab is setting up the framework to make Mm -hmm. that sort of thing a reality. Well, it's interesting that some of these corporations are wobbling at the moment. I see Amazon is losing share price and laid off about 10,000 workers just this week. So we would sort of imagine that as almost a uh, quasi-governance organization or quasi-state in terms of its multinational reach. And of course, you know, firms like Apple are still doing quite well. Google's still doing quite well. But I'm certainly in that category of people who maybe 15 years ago would have said, well, Bob, you know, a, a disgruntled local traffic cop or a, a grumpy DMV person has more power over my life than Google or Amazon or something. And, you know, that, I think we have to revisit that. I think that's probably not correct. Uh, you know, that it just is a, as a matter of fact. 
Yeah, exactly. And I would have been the same way too. Like to say, hey, let's make sure, let's be clear about what the problem. Yes, in the real world, there's you know government business partnerships, and that's a bad thing. But it's always the state and the government, or sorry, the private business per se is voluntary by definition. And you know that may all be true, but it gets to the point at which you want to want to say, well, okay, but if you're saying in reality, most of the problems are coming from these huge global organizations where there's private, you know, technically private individuals who behind the scenes are perhaps funding the elections, you know, the campaigns of both sides and various things around the world. And even to give an example, too, I mean, there's a clip we can maybe include in the show notes page where Klaus Schwab is being interviewed by someone and is bragging about how the WEF graduates have penetrated the cabinets of major governments around the world. And that's the verb mm-hmm. he used, penetrate. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, I'm glad that we had some influence on the thinking of future leaders. No, no, he didn't say anything benign. He said that our graduates have penetrated the cabinets of governments around the world. So in a situation like that, you know, is the WEF just private, even though you know they're actively hijacking yes. the various you know, yes. governments around the world? So, so yes, it's true. And the pure free market and everything's voluntary, you know, that's great. And we don't have that right now. And so you can say it's not capitalism's fault. And, you know, and I agree with that. And it's good to have a baseline to say this is what Rothbardian libertarianism would look like, a free society. And now we have now. But in practice, it does seem to just keep saying, oh, it's just the state. It's just the state. When if, these again, these major corporations who might be have recruited and have people in the government answering to them behind the scenes, then it's like, well, okay, that's right. a distinction that doesn't seem like a big deal of stress right now. Well, and with the Twitter fallout, with Elon Musk buying it, we found that the state was very much involved. Uh, you know, what we can call the state members of the administration, the Biden administration, uh, members of Congress reaching out to Twitter, trying to deplatform people. So uh, the other thing is I'm not required by my libertarian principles to cheer what, a, a bunch of leftists at Twitter who apparently hated our guts. Right. Which we're finding from their sort of public pronouncements when they left in a huff. Right. I, you know, this idea that that we have to be suicidal to support, you know, my private company. I, I mean, that, I think that's nonsense. But I, I guess I, I just want to before we leave Schwab here, when you say his book on the fourth industrial revolution. So, so I assume number one's agriculture. Number two is industrial. Number three is digital or tech. What, what's the fourth revolution? I, I don't know. So it it involved uh, several different um, like artificial intelligence and then mm. other uh, transhumanism that all I'm trying to remember if he I don't I mean, I'm almost positive he didn't use that term. Yes, it would have been too provocative. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember how he just like I, I do believe that, yes, it was, you know, enhancements, advances in medical technology and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, but it was several different strands all coming together and it was like the synergy, you know, they used buzzwords like that of, of, as to oh. what it was going to be. So yes, everybody in their own narrow thing understands, oh, we're making advancements in this field and this field, but he was saying, I'm seeing it's all going to come together and, you know, and, and so th- this is what is going to usher in this, this new era that future historians are going to look back and call this the fourth industrial Revolution, right? Um, and, and and that's and that's the, the thing singularity. too. Singularity. That's, that's that's his appeal, like to telling bit like not just business leaders, like hey, you better get on board with this stuff, otherwise you're gonna get left in the dust. But even going mm-hmm. around to like princes in the Middle East and whatever, and saying you need to be aware of this if you want to be at the table twenty years from now. Otherwise, these other you know, so it's that kind of thing where everybody wants to be on the winning team, and he has a lot of credibility because look at all the you know clout behind him already. 
And so, you know, it kind of just picks people off one by one. Hey, I got media on my side. I got, you know, governments on my side. British intelligence, you know, I'm, I'm buddies with Prince Charles, well, King Charles, you know, all this stuff. And so that's kind of how it is. it's almost presented as a, you know, it's a done deal. And this, this is going to happen. And so it's inevitable. And you might as well be with us. You don't want to, you know, what are you going to just try to put your uh, foot down and you're not going to be able to stop it. So just join us and then maybe you'll have some influence in how it how it unravels. Well, if I were the head of a poor third world African country or a business person in a third world country, I'd probably say, yeah, let's let's join with them. I mean, that's probably the future if we need aid, if we need loans, if we need development. Right. I mean, that's rational. But what strikes me is so much of this rhetoric, you know, where, where we call this this fourth industrial revolution, the singularity world, you know, it's, it's all based on this absolutely nonsensical idea that we we are going to overcome scarcity. <laughs> which is complete nonsense. And saying that in the face of, of hor- you know, still horrific poverty on this planet today, uh, among vast swaths of, of the world. I mean, read Alex Epstein's book about the energy consumption of some of the, the poor countries. I mean, you know, that, that we're going to overcome uh, scarcity. I think that's the only way that they can argue with a straight face that we're going to have this sort of neo a version of capitalism be, where where it's not so much about producing things it's about distributing them fairly and you know some of that might mean that you westerners have to stop driving so much have to stop eating so much meat have to live in a smaller place and you know as my uh, friend peter st ange the economist pointed out this morning he said you know the only way you can really Re- totally reduce your CO2 footprint as a human is to die <laughs> and get mm-hmm. and get your body in the ground de- uh, decomposing so um, I, I guess the question becomes the fact that we're even talking about this, that we're, you know, we are animated by this idea of these very globalist, non-national nation state type elites coming up with all these plans for us. Are we, Bob, Pollyannish in that they don't have any real power? It's just a bunch of rich fat cats getting together talking with their caviar and that there, there's no mechanism for them to impose any of this on us. Well, yeah. So I think we should address that possible um, pushback. And I and I have seen, as we were talking about before we started recording, Jeff. I think there's like a bit of Klaus fatigue that's been setting in among some sectors in the American right, where they're like, okay, we keep talking about this guy. In fact, maybe we can link to this. There's a Scott Greer post where he says the American right is just like this is a boogeyman now, and uh. and Klaus Schwab is the, is a safe villain because he's white and German sounding. You know, this is standard. <laughs> you know, this is like Indiana Jones fighting the Nazis. This is real safe. You can hate him and not be called a racist. Whereas you know the real threats to the U.S. according to Greer are you know woke culture and the people trying to take your kids and you know transgender them and all that stuff. And so let me just respond to that briefly so if, if you go and look at the wef you know i just before we start recording Jeff just looked at what they're what they were recording it was things like the the live sessions that were going advancing racial and ethnic equity and that was the thing about you know telling corporate managers this is how in your own workplace you got to do the, achieve those goals different roads to energy transition and that it was all about you know hey climate change we got to go ahead and, and reduce carbon emissions all that stuff Water, the bloodstream of our Earth system, again, all about climate change. You have to revamp our um, utility structures in order to, to make more sustainable investments, things like that. So all the, the woke stuff from the left is coming out of the WEF. And then also this idea that Greer also gets into is, that, hey, Klaus, they're over there. Let's just focus on our own problems. Klaus Schwab, he was, he's got an economics and, and engineering advanced degrees. Okay. But by his own telling, he was 
in Harvard in the I think it was in the sixties, and he took Henry Kissinger's course on wow. the geopolitics. I forget the name of it. And Klaus says that that's what got him interested in you know oh I I, just, I left academia or just you know mere technocracy and realized oh there's a bigger thing for me to do, and it's we can link this piece by Johnny Vedmore where he he points all this stuff out. And Klaus Schwab was recruited by various people connected like with the CFR and all that stuff and to form an organization that was then renamed the WEF. And uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, for example, was the keynote speaker at that at their first meeting. All right. So this is isn't just some European thing and we're just getting distracted. This was created by a lot of the you know bad players in, in the U.S. political arena. And all it's it, let me just, I'll end with this one, Jeff. It seems a lot, doesn't it, like that the American left, like they're all coordinated. Like they always you start using the same buzzwords. All that's like, man, how come they're so well organized? It's like they all got a memo from somewhere. Well, the WEF and groups like that is where the memos are coming from. Right. So that's partly what it's is. They sort of set the tone and say, this is how we're going to talk about these issues. And then everybody just follows suit. Not necessarily because they're literally getting an email saying this is what your marching orders are, but just because they realize, ah, this is how the tone has been set. This is the language, the vocabulary we're going to use. And they sort of just go with the flow. And that's why it just seems like, man, if you're uh, a right dissident in the United States, it seems like you're up against the whole everything that the media and, and corporations and academia are all aligned against you. How is that possible? Well, it's because of organizations like this. It's not just random. Hmm. Well, it's interesting that the digital age has not allowed a proliferation of worldviews. It's, it's actually encouraged monoculture. And, you know, it's, it's encouraged one worldview. I mean, if you go on Twitter on any given day and look at the battle du jour, you'll see, just like you said, there's no central command sending out talking points to every lefty on Twitter. But nonetheless, they all, by the end of the day... You know, the hive mind is, is working and maybe it's it's working as intended. But I mean, I would push back a little bit on the idea that there's no mechanisms for uh, a, a global elite to work its will on us domestically. Because, I, I mean, let me just tell you a little vignette. When I worked for Ron Paul on the Hill in the early 2000s, you know, Ron got a lot of grief from libertarians for opposing what we considered managed trade schemes like NAFTA and WTO. Now, now those were uh, WTO uh, was a little before his, his his time in Congress, his second time around. But nonetheless, um, you know, the Cato Institute was very pro WTO. Uh, the World Trade Organization, which itself came out of GATT, which was a the Global Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is sort of end of World War II, I believe, like 1948. So the WTO comes along, and ostensibly this is a good thing from a libertarian perspective in that its, its ultimate goal is to reduce tariffs between trading nations, and we can all agree that that's a good thing. But its, it's secondary goal, or maybe it's, it, you know, the goal that goes along with that is sort of harmonizing the rules amongst uh, signers to the WTO agreement. So, you know, Ron, Dr. Paul and others were saying, hey, you know, this threatens our sovereignty because the WTO can object to uh, some of our domestic laws and force us to change them. And, and organizations like Cato just absolutely poo-pooed this, dismissed this, just said, no, 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 this is just all upside. There's no downside. 
you know, and, and to be fair, a lot of, uh, I think, libertarians don't care about or don't even like the idea of national sovereignty. Mises very much used the, you know, the nation state as his sort of unit of analysis in the book Liberalism. Now, he talks about, hey, there's, there's some good things that could come out of global governance of a sort or global agreements. But, you know, still, his, in both na- uh, nation state and economy and liberalism, and the nation state is his sort of unit of account, his unit of analysis. All right. So uh, when the WTO comes along, And people like Ron and Murray Rothbard at the time, still alive, are saying, hey, you know, all all we need for free trade is a bilateral agreement between two countries. You don't need these multi-country things with hundreds of pages of bureaucracy and setting up these these sort of quasi-governmental tribunals. No, no, we don't need any of that. You know, the U.S. and the U.K. can just have a one-line agreement between them says, we agree to have zero, uh, you know, uh, tariffs on each other's steel. Right. That's all. That's all it would take. Of course, that's not the way the world works. But fine. Ron was trying to make a libertarian principle. So um, when libertarians are bashing him for being against this agreement, well, lo and behold, what happens just a couple of years later? This is around 2004. So Bill Thomas, some of you remember that name. He's a very powerful guy feared on the Hill. He was a, a California rancher and he was chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, which is a very powerful committee. And which is where all tax legislation is supposed to originate. So anyway, uh, U.S. United States, unlike most modern industrial nations, has a worldwide tax system. That means if you're a U.S. citizen or resident, you get taxed on your worldwide income. Now, you know, the source doesn't matter. If you make money in South Korea, you, you, know, you get taxed on that by Uncle Sam. Now, if you pay tax in South Korea, you might have a foreign tax credit, but that's a separate issue. Okay, so as a result of this, Big U.S. multinational corporations, which operate in many, many corners of the world, said, hey, let's set up foreign corporations, subsidiaries, and let's sell, manufacture, operate, whatever, in these foreign jurisdictions. And, you know, uh, unless and until we bring that money back to the U.S., to the parent company of Apple or whoever, or Google, in the form of a dividend, you know, that's that's – you know, that's not taxed, that, that, that's not tax revenue to the U.S. taxpayer. That's tax revenue to our foreign subsidiary. Okay. There's a whole area of the Internal Revenue Code called Subpart F, which, which is designed to sort of force you to pay tax on that, even if you don't bring it back. Okay. Complicated stuff. But nonetheless, uh, there was something called a foreign sales corporation, which the WTO appellate panel at the time, this is the late 90s, early 2000s, said, hey, that's no good. That's because you're not forcing the sales corporations, which are foreign subsidiaries, to immediately bring that income back and tax it in the U.S., that that's a subsidy. That's an illegal subsidy. They didn't say that that's a subsidy that violates our WTO agreement. That's not the terminology. They said that's an illegal subsidy. Illegal meaning like criminal law. Okay? So when they use that term, they're basically saying you broke the law. The United States tax code broke the law, which is a very different than like abiding by a treaty. Or, so anyway, Bill Thomas, this tough guy, dutifully goes back to Congress and says, hey, guys, sorry, uh, the WTO appellate panel, which is a fake court, it's a fake quasi court, has ruled against us. So we got to change it. And Congress, like little whip dogs, went ahead and changed that rule. And Ron was like, hey, this is what I was talking about. 
Okay, this is the mechanism by which we lose our sovereignty to international agreements. And, you know, it just, it, it struck me at the time that the same people who love this sort of international globalist approach to things, and we all love economic globalism. We all understand that. We all understand the, the idea of comparative advantage and specialization and the benefits we all reap from getting, let's say, cheap flip-flops from China. We get that. But, but political globalism is a very different animal. And I would argue that, that you know, the WTO represents a political form of globalism that we shouldn't support. And that, you know, it, it, today, this finds resonance in organizations like the, the WEF. And, and I think COVID has probably given them some steam. Yeah, so I agree with all that. And it's funny, I remember, I think I was in high school when I first got um, the collection the Institute put out called Making Economic Sense, a collection of Rothbard's essays. And when he was against NAFTA in that, at the time, I didn't understand why. Because I was just, well, it's for free trade. And I didn't, you know, so now that I'm older and wiser, I, I get it. But at the time, I, I remember thinking, well, geez, I thought free trade was a, was a you know, slam dunk. What are you talking about? Yes, but, yes. I had a very disorienting moment in my young life when I heard, and it was harder to hear things back then because there's no internet. But when I heard in 92 that Rothbard was supporting Pat Buchanan because I didn't yeah, understand right. that this mm -hmm. was more about foreign policy and and a, a non-interventionist guy versus the sort of Rockefeller globalist wing of the GOP uh, personified by uh, Bush Sr. You know, right. so, right. I mean, that, you know, it's a very different time now. To give a different example, the kind of thing you're talking about, I remember um, I was a professor at Hillsdale at the time. Uh, so this would have been like in the early 2000s and the George W. Bush administration, they did something, I can't remember what maybe you remember, they did something that was allegedly in violation of, uh, you know, they, like they put the duty or something on goods coming in from, I think, China. And the WTO said, if you don't drop that, what we're going to do is levy, you know, punishment. And it would have hurt. And, and Gary Wolfram, who was a real sharp economist there, and he explained to me that what they were doing was like going to just affect exporters in key swing states. You know what I mean? Like what the WTO or whoever it was came back and said, if you don't drop these, this is what the pen penalty is going to be. And it wasn't just some, oh, we asked an economist what would be fair. It was clearly designed to cause maximum damage to Bush in his reelection campaign, um, you know, in terms of like who it was going to hurt in key areas where, the, where it wasn't clear which way they were going to go, R or D, in the upcoming election. So there's, there's all sorts of things like that that, yes, it's, it's not just a matter of, oh, we want to move towards free trade and this is the way to do it. Um, and it's so again the, the mechanism that, that people see, and this is, has to do with, you know, with Brexit and all this stuff. That yes, local groups then you know give over their sovereignty. And, and you're right in, in in some abstract philosophical sense, standard Rothbardian analysis. You know, sovereign national sovereignty is not really a thing. You know, everybody's just an individual owner and self sovereign. But again, given realities that if you're part of this smaller group and then joining into a broader group is not a good idea because then you're going to have less influence over that. So, so the, the, the ideal would be, yeah, absolute free trade among all units on planet Earth and individual, you know, everybody is his or her own ruler. You know, that, that would be the two extremes. And notice that those two go together. If, if it's just you and there's 7 billion or 8 billion other sort of individual sovereign entities, there's not going to be large trading blocks, probably. Probably the default thing is everybody's just going to have free trade with everybody else. And that's just how you're going to conduct your business. And so the two do go hand in hand. And 
So yeah, I think what the WEF they're they're trying to push for these big you know blocks because they realize they can more easily influence. It's easier to capture some group that's like a coalition of partners that oversees uh, the United States, Canada, Mexico, and Europe, and Great Britain, and so forth. Like for they're all some central group. Nobody in each of those individual countries is going to have much direct influence over that. Well. Let's talk about what the WEF might attempt to do next. Now, their meeting this year, two things strike me as very different versus a year ago. One is there's no longer any pretense that Western countries can claim that inflation is just some transitory thing. It's not a big deal because clearly inflation has been much more severe in the 12 months since the last Davos meeting than anyone, than most people would have anticipated and that it's, it apparently is uh, it's pretty stubborn. It's not going to be so easily dealt with. And number two is that this Russia-Ukraine conflict has dragged on, gotten nastier, more entrenched. We've got actual like trench warfare now. Uh, you know, this this is really getting into an ugly situation. And some of Putin's rhetoric with respect to nuclear weapons is exceedingly ugly, which I suppose is his way of warning the West. Look, if you guys attempt to escalate through NATO or otherwise, uh, your arms or, or even actual troops in support of Ukraine, you know, this is my ace uh, in my pocket. So that's all worse than than a year ago at Davos. So I, let's say the next crisis is not uh, flu. Let's say it's either economic, the Fed is unable to corral inflation or engineer a so-called soft landing, or this Ukraine-Russia thing uh, heats up and expands. I mean, what 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 is the WEF you know, what, what, what do they try to do? What's their role in all of this? I mean, to me, a, a crisis is an opportunity for elites to seize power because people are scared during a crisis and they're, they're clamoring for some authority to come make it right. Yeah, so I think one thing for sure they're going to do is keep pushing the um, CBDC, the central bank issue, digital currencies, and that would you know fold right in nicely with oh you know look at the price inflation and and there'll be different performances by different central banks and so that would even give more impetus to why don't we just have a more regional one you know it's in in this way you know the the poor people who are in this country that's suffering under the ravages of inflation wouldn't it be better if you were under you know a broader umbrella of a more rationally managed currency so I think you you would see a, a push for that. Um, and also to their standard litany of, oh, this this helps us stop against money laundering and, you know, all these terrorist organizations trying to do things. And if we just had this, uh, the government in control of the currency for real, then, uh, you know, things would be so much better. So I, I think you're going to see that. Um, and, and they are. And I I did one of the lives I told you when I was jotting down the live sessions. One was an integration of global tax reform and harmonization. So when you were telling your Ron Paul story, that reminded me of that, that that it disappeared before I could jot it down. But I guess the session ended while I was looking at the menu. But th- that's the thing, too, that they're definitely they're trying to just integrate the tax treatment of governments around the world again. So I think it, it, to the extent that there are economic crises and different people performing differently, They'll just, again, go just get swept up with that, that, hey, why don't we just have a more uniform system? It's kind of crazy that capital is zooming all over the place based on, you know, a few rates changing in a few brackets, that sort of thing, and have a more a, a fairer treatment. Because, look, there's these crazy, you know, this company over here is not paying any tax because they relocated to Ireland, and that's nuts. And so mm-hmm. let's go ahead and reform that. Um, as, as far as the Europe, so I've seen different things. Like, there is a danger of, like, thinking everybody's playing 7D chess. So clearly in terms of their official rhetoric, 
that yes, the people at Davos are very concerned about Putin, and we need to, you know, we in the European community need to think about how we're going to bolster our mutual defense and da 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 da. On the other hand, I've seen people who are, you know, there's photographs of Putin hobnobbing with some of these people a few years ago. And so some people are, oh, this, you know, they wanted this to happen so they could have the excuse. You know, I don't, you know, it depends. At some point, I think you take it too deep and just it is what it is. Just look at the surface of it. But in any event, yeah, it will foster more um, people merging their sovereignty, just like the, the trend you said before, because now it's like, oh, any individual country can't stand up to Russia. That's why, again, we need to strengthen ourselves and just throw in, in a common lot. We're all in this together, and let's, mer- <laughs> let's go ahead and merge all over. You know, you can't have 18 different militaries making independent decisions. We need to all be under one joint command, that sort of thing. Well, Bob, let's not forget that uh, U.S. bigwigs used to hobnob with Saddam Hussein and the Mujahideen and Manuel Noriega and all kinds of people who later became enemies. So, uh, we, you know, we're allowed to switch. And I did see the uh, prime minister of Finland talking to a, a, a news person at Davos yesterday saying, hey, you know, we're going to support Ukraine if it takes one year, if it takes five years, if it takes 15 years. So you get the sense that there is some digging in on that. And, and there are people in the West who want to present this as the ultimate uh, conflict. In other words, that this is a, not just a proxy for East versus West, but it's a proxy for d- democracy versus authoritarianism. That's a stretch, needless to say. But, I mean, that, that is the narrative. And, you know, if we do have some sort of global financial crisis, I don't think we're going to have a dollar crisis. But... You could have a crisis where, whereby all the other currencies, the big ones, especially the euro, the yen, the yuan, you know, are all doing poorly against the dollar and in an accelerating fashion. If you, if you just Google Brent Johnson, the dollar milkshake theory, he is a, he's an interesting guy. I don't agree 100%, but I agree largely with his premise. Um, he's got a great video on that and, and how you know, the U.S. dollar could actually uh, do so well against other currencies that it begins to cause huge dislocations uh, in the global economy as more and more money moves into the dollar. So, but, but nonetheless, you know, when you talk about tax harmonization and the idea, well, we can't have all these wildly different tax treatments of capital around the world because then money will flow around and we, you know, we, we don't want that. Um, in other words, they don't want capitalist countries. But now we have this idea of a digital currency. So that makes the the uh, prospect of a global currency very different. You know, people like, um, uh, you know, Pat Buchanan, people like Jim Rickards used to talk about the IMF using its special drawing rights to become the de facto global reserve currency if the dollar ever wobbled. And so the idea would be the, the, you know, uh, central banks are the banker's bank. Well, the IMF would become the central banker's bank, and it would be the ultimate backstop, and these special drawing rights would become a form of global currency on their own. And at first, anyway, they would consist of a basket of other currencies and commodities to make it sort of more understandable and palatable, but ultimately the, the, uh, the special drawing rights would just be a, become a pure fiat instrument of the IMF. And you don't hear so much about that anymore. Uh, because I think now you got the the possibility to issue this digitally, but the question still is is who issues, and does this help or hurt the U.S.? I mean, the U.S. likes its position, obviously, as the world's reserve currency. I mean, they, I think you, 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 the you know, Western elites would be loath to give up that system because they benefit from it. Uh, but also, you know, if we do have a crisis of sorts, I don't think they're going to allow 
what happened, let's say, in 07, 08. And, and as you mentioned, you know, you have all these different governments, even if they're using the euro, they still have their own banks. They still have their, they still have their own uh, sovereign debt. You know, they still issue their own bond debt. There's just not there's not just one EU bond for all the European Union. I mean, Greece and Germany and still still individual still issue individual bond debt. So you could see another crisis happening in the global economy. Let's say let's let's hope only as bad as 0708 that the reaction by global elites would be like, hey, look, this shows why we need more central centralization. We can't just have all these governments reverting to their own national interests. We can't have all these currency issuers, whether that's the Swiss National Bank or the Japanese Yen or whatever, just reverting to their own national interests. We can't have bond issuers just reverting to their own national interests. We have to control all this globally because, you know, the, the, the worldwide economy is so globally interconnected today. So this, this to me is the danger that, that global capitalism, global free trade of goods and services, is a very different thing from political globalism. But boy, oh boy, you know, the idea that we are all so dependent on other countries for all kinds of goods and services sure gives them a, a much stronger argument for imposing this. And, you know, that, that's, that's what scares me, is the next crisis will be used, uh, you know, average people will be worried and they, were, they will clamor for leadership you know, beyond Washington. Yeah, right. And just to give a little bit more of the specifics, I, I agree with you how this is going to play out that when the crisis happens. So, so yes, the individual European countries have their own uh, respective government bonds, but then part of what happened in the last, you know, wake of the last crisis, the OA crisis is that the European Central Bank was pressured to go ahead and just start like buying, but like Greek bonds or whatever, or maybe through an intermediary, in order to you know take pressure off of them, you know, because it's you know and and they had they ostensibly had all these rules like oh if you want to join the you know adopt the euro you know your government has to respect all of these rules about you right. know that's that and the Greek government just lied about what it did and everyone kind of knew it was lying and they could they joined they were allowed to join anywhere or you know the opening steps whatever. So it, I think that's – so you're right. A crisis is going to hit, and then people say, well, we can't just let them go down. I mean, it's the same kind of rhetoric <laughs> as with the, you know, the U.S. debt ceiling every time that that threatens. It would be absolutely chaos if we defaulted, and so you know, this is too, they're too big to fail, so we got to bail them out. But then, well, given, geez, that we know in a crisis we're going to keep bailing them out, they can't just be allowed to willy-nilly run their own deficits. Like, they need to have some other group overseeing them. So it, it's – it's like um, you know when the IMF or the World Bank comes in and bails out some South American country, and they impose all these draconian, you know, some of which is called neoliberalism, and some of it is like okay, reduce tariffs and you know privatize some state enterprises, but here's your ten billion dollar loan, and then we're kind of giving you marching orders for the next ten years, and so that's the way this stuff. That's the way that they sort of voluntarily get all of these smaller political units to fall into the fold and to, you know, to become influenced by them. And it just kind of gets ossified over time. So, so yeah, they they don't give up and they're very creative. There's all sorts of different ways you can exert your influence. If you have a bunch of printing presses at your disposal. Well, we can laugh all we want at the idea of Greek bonds or Italian bonds or anything else, but go take a look at the U S government's uh, debt to GDP ratio, which is as high as basically since world war II, and go and take a look at the off balance sheet accounting of U.S. entitlement promises to the future, which make that $31 trillion in, in so-called national debt 
look like peanuts. So I'm not so sure that we can be chuckling. We may need junk bond rates at some point for our own U.S. Treasury data. I think we got to leave it there, Bob. We will link to uh, Klaus Schwab, a couple of the articles Bob mentioned, and I guess we will stay tuned to see uh, if anything else comes out of Davos. But all that said, Bob, always good to see you. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for your time, and have a great weekend. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.